0: You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.
1: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win?
0: Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: Welcome to the Broadway Gives Back Podcast. I'm your host, Jan Svenson. This podcast spotlights Broadway actors, shows, and organizations in their pursuit of social impact and philanthropy. Join us as some of the brightest lights on Broadway share their stories about their favorite charities and how they got involved and the people and the causes who benefited from these philanthropic efforts. In 2005, John Lloyd Young took Broadway by storm with his portrayal of Frankie Valli in the Tony Award-winning Best Musical, Jersey Boys. He won a Tony Award, a Drama Desk Award, a Theater World Award, and a Grammy Award for that memorable performance. Plus, he starred in the 2014 film version directed by Clint Eastwood. John is not just an actor, a singer, a dancer, but also a visual pop artist, so he is a quadruple talent. But never one to rest on his laurels, John has used his amazing talent to support a number of worthy causes, and I'm so thrilled to have him here today. John, welcome to the Broadway Gives Back Podcast.
0: Thank you so much.
2: So before we... chat about philanthropy and what you've been up to, Um, I would like to play a little game with you. Haven't tried this before with any guests, but I thought we would try a little quick, like rapid fire Q and A to break the ice. Are you, uh, are you game for that?
0: I'm game.
2: Okay. What's your guilty pleasure?
0: Cadbury cream eggs.
2: At what job would you be terrible?
0: Accountant.
2: If you weren't an artist, what would you do to earn a living?
0: Probably something in politics or, or that kind of thing. Engaging with the public somehow in another way. Writer, maybe.
2: Give me three adjectives that you would use to describe yourself.
0: Creative, uncertain, and serious.
2: What do you most give a damn about?
0: Justice.
2: What is a dream you've yet to achieve?
0: I've done it before, but living and working abroad in a sustained way. More than just for a few weeks.
2: What is something that you always say you're going to do, but you know that in your heart you never will?
0: (laughs) Read all the books in my library.
2: Name one thing that you've had to give up to achieve your current level of success.
0: What would be recognized as the normal path or the stability, you know, white picket fence kind of setting down roots in one place, you know, that kind of taken for granted kind of stability. Any stability, actually.
2: (laughs) John, what are you most grateful for today? My
0: health. No holds barred. I think we can all understand how we could maybe have a new appreciation for that under circumstances.
2: For sure. What was the last random act of kindness that you performed for someone else?
0: It was just a couple minutes before before I got on with you, uh, a young student wrote to me on social media that he just discovered me and his voice teacher, uh, you know, mentioned me as someone who was a talented singer and he, um, and he said he was a fan or whatever and I, I gave him some, some advice that it took me 20 years to learn
1: hmm. and said, I
0: want to give you a head start that before you sing, warm liquids literally warm your voice up and it took me 20 years to learn it and good luck.
2: <laughs> That's great advice. Mm-hmm. I've been trying to drink tea before I do these podcast report recordings, but today I forgot. So my voice will probably be a little froggy. Well,
0: <laughs> it's not always, but it definitely, definitely kickstarts a warm up, especially if you don't have a lot of time to warm up before a performance or something. A hot liquid will get you there
2: Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, you heard it here. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, thanks for playing that little game with us. Um, And let's just talk about, yeah, I guess let's talk about this past year. have you been coping? Um, And do you feel hopeful or more hopeful now?
0: I feel hopeful with a little bit of hesitancy um, that things are going to come back kinder. The reason I say with hesitancy. And I'm thinking specifically to kind of our business uh, or Broadway specifically, you know, mm-hmm. but the entertainment business at, at large, it's a business of egos. You have to have a healthy ego to keep coming up to bat when, when people say no, I mean, cause that's like the beginning of every career is just being said no to over and over again for most people. And so a, a healthy ego is a good thing because you kind of uh, can endure. But as we've seen recently, even with everything shut down, there are some people who don't want it to come back the way it was and expect people to be treated nicer. And I want to believe people will be treated nicer, but there are certain individuals have been kind of called out in the last Mm -hmm. year or so.
2: Last week, in particular,
0: <laughs> the last week, and for every individual that's called out, there's at least twenty more who behave that way all the time,
2: mm-hmm. who
0: haven't been called out and who might not be. And I've seen it with my own eyes. I worked in production offices uh, before I was an actor, so it almost is like a. It's almost like you had to, you just have to accept this is what this is this society is like, and if you can. Well, how many times have we heard people say you have to have a thick skin? Well, literally, if a stapler is being thrown at you, you better have a, a thick hide or else you, can, you know, it's going to draw blood. But I mean, but that also applies to certain um, harassment situations where you have emotional thick skin to certain quid pro quo situations where you have to do something that denigrates your integrity in order to um, be in contention even for a job or whatever. And. We know all the cliches; they've been portrayed in in entertainment, you know, in shows or whatever. So, I'm hopeful that after this big um, pause, forced pause, mm-hmm. that we'll come back kinder and um, more compassionate. But I don't know. I'm am I'm, I'm a little hesitant to believe it'll be that way. Anyway, but let me let me answer the first part of your question, which is that how I, I've dealt personally with the pandemic. Um uh, you know, the first thing I did was to go back into the art studio because I have an art career um, on, you know on the side, running just right alongside of everything else. You know, I mm-hmm. see it like my career has been sort of like a pie chart, you know, At any one time, one of those quadrants is is active. So mm-hmm. when uh, live performance shut down, I was right back into the art studio. And, uh, and so that was a, a saving grace for me, to, um, going back in the art studio, creating several pieces. I mean, more than probably about 120 pieces I've sold um, during the year.
2: Wow. That's 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 a prolific amount of art.
0: Well, didn't we have a lot of time on our hands? Yeah. We did
2: have a lot of time on our hands.
0: <laughs> um, so that was one. that was the first thing I did. And then um, as certain protocols started to open up, then I started to do live stream concerts from um, first the space in, in Las Vegas, where I had done live concerts before with live audiences. I started doing those in July of 2020. I do it probably about every six weeks or so. I have one coming up May 1st. that's um, all request, And then also, um, you know, I play Michael Feinstein's clubs around the country, you know, pre-COVID. Mm-hmm. And his club here in Los Angeles, where I live, Feinstein's at Vitello's, just started their own um, live streaming a few months ago. So, and so I've been able to kind of keep my momentum going, not just as a performer, but also keep my audience engaged, uh, you know, give them little stones across the river of, of this COVID pause to you know, until we get to the other side. Little landmarks along the way Mm -hmm. to gather together. Little
2: little breadcrumbs, yeah. Yeah. You know, don't you think though? As you're talking about this, I was thinking that you know we've so much bad has happened this last year, but there's interesting and good things that have come out of it too. And this whole idea of these virtual concerts that you've been doing and others as well, you know, I think that they're going to continue even after we come back to whatever the new normal is. So to me, there's this opportunity to see live performance, which is, there's nothing like that, obviously, no. but I think there'll still be an opportunity to hit more people and, um, and, you know, be able to perform for more people and touch more people through virtual. Do you think you'll continue to do both if you have the opportunity?
0: Absolutely. And I also think that, I think maybe in the past, there was a bit of a, um, of an anxiety about like, if you let people, if you, if you let people watch something live, um, if you let them watch it virtually that you would then not have people would want to show up and come and see the live thing and pay, mm-hmm. you know, to see it live. I don't, I've never agreed with that philosophy. And it's because when I was a kid, you know, I always wanted to be in New York city, but my dad was air force. So I wasn't you know, in lots of different random places across the country. When I was a kid, my connection to Broadway was whenever I would, visit my grandparents in the summer. They lived in Queens, you know, so I'd see my occasional Broadway show maybe once a year. And then Mm -hmm. of course the Tony awards, there was no internet when I was a kid. So the Tony awards, I'd watch those, but I also remember that there was, um, you might remember Rosie O'Donnell got her start, at least became started to become well-known when she was the MC for, um, Caroline's comedy hour. Do you remember Caroline's comedy? Yeah. And so So, um, you know, I was, I remember distinctly, I was a kid in Omaha, Nebraska, very far away from, from Broadway in New York where I wanted to end up and I would watch Caroline's comedy hour and I knew it was coming from New York city and it was coming from a club in New York city. And then whenever I would be in New York city, I'd want to go to Caroline's, you know, at Mm -hmm. first I was too young to go there. But uh, it would and then live at the Apollo, which would come on after I think maybe Saturday Night Live. And so and it was from the Apollo Theater in Harlem, the famous theater. Mm-hmm. So it made me want to go to those places when I, or when and if I was in New York City. And because I was my own focus group for this idea, you know, <laughs> I know it, I know it personally that it made me want to actually be there or the, the Tony Awards made you want to actually go and sit in the audience for those shows. I believe that streaming um, is only going to be an enhancement for the live shows. And if I were some guy in, again, in Omaha, who couldn't necessarily get to Feinstein's 50 more below to see John Lloyd Young, but I wanted to see the concert, uh, that particular concert, I would watch the stream. And then in the future, when I was in New York and able to see John Lloyd Young live, I'd go there too. So I think that they, they, We'll feed each other and I hope that it doesn't go away when things lift. I, I think it's more eyes on the prize.
2: Exactly. No, I, I think that too. And um being able to leverage both of those experiences are are really are really special. And especially with the virtual now, because you can still do like a talk back after your virtual show if you wanted to, or do a meet and greet.
0: Absolutely. I do those as a matter of course.
2: Well, you do, you do requests beforehand for concerts too, right?
0: Everyone has been sort of different. It's been an interesting way for me to kind of look at my repertoire and play around with what I've got and see what I've got and, and and do different themes for different things. But the one thing when I started the live streams that was a little bit of a, just a little blip of confusion at first was one of the most popular things about my live shows are my meet and greets, which sometimes are so popular that they last longer than the concert. When the when virtual became necessary, I was thinking, what what can we do to sort of scratch that that meet and greet itch? And so, what we do and what we've done with every single live stream that I've done, and I may be done about ten now or somewhere around there, um, we do the concert just as I usually do. And so the audience is a fly on the wall for the concert, very similar to what you would see when we, you know, if you're sitting in a live room with us. And then afterward, because I can't do a receiving line and talk to people individually, I think of something that might be a fun way to kind of relax and hang out afterward. The after party, we call it an after party, virtual after party. And we've done Q and A's, we've done uh, some bonus songs maybe, um, answered questions from people you know in real time. After uh, the Valentine's Day concert, I actually uh, was given a landline phone and called people, fans, and had like a little five minute speed dating run. I, I set up a table like out at a cafe table, right? And I had a bottle of wine and a wine glass. And as the hour went on, I was drinking wine. And taking calls and talking into the camera one on one with someone at home, yeah. um, and we went person to person and just uh, probably did, did about twenty people. And then when we ran out of time, I just did a speed round of answering the questions that they we would have right. know, discussed.
2: And I'm assuming the bottle of wine was empty by the end of that too, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. And I got looser. It was. You I was going to say like,
2: your uh, answers were longer and, long long. and a little more intimate.
0: <laughs> right. It was. Uh, it was pretty fun was uproarious at some points um and so this next one um the may 1st the may 1st show is all by request so the first the concert is songs that the audience chose that are songs that i'm known to sing that they wanted to hear so it's the first time ever in my career of doing concerts that i put together a whole concert of requests so they chose the first half and then the after party is going to be songs that I've never done before that they want to hear me do. And Tommy Farragher, my music director, and I are going to work them up in real time. If the key needs to be changed, we're going to change the key. If it's like, you take this part, I take this part, we're going to do all that stuff live with the audience watching. And then um, I'm going to, I think, be set up with, there's a live chat that goes on during it. And I'm going to be set up with that so that if I want to talk to people in real time, you know, get feedback and back and forth about mm-hmm. what we're doing, I can do that. So it's almost like a, an open studio session. Each one has been different, and each one has, I think, really scratched that itch of the, the meet and greet, the, the one-on-one kind of the personal connection to the artist uh, after the performance.
2: What do you get out of, like, the the meet and greet?
0: I like the pressing flesh part of it and the engaging with the people who are supporting my concerts. It's, it's almost like engaging with your constituents in a way it's fun Mm -hmm. for me to kind of remember, uh, a part of a conversation that we had a month, two months ago or whatever the last time I saw them in a meet and greet and, uh, and, and to continue where we left off, I'm interested in them as people, and I like that interaction, so it's um, it's actually a fun exercise for me. It's just that after giving a, you know, after drawing blood with all these, you know, sometimes very emotional songs in a in a show, it can be physically exhausting. But it's always um, rewarding, always.
2: Well, there are so many people that appreciate your art, whether it's your visual pop art or whether it's your, you know, your your performances, and um, it must be really gratifying to get exchange that energy with those people after and, and sort of be rewarded with that.
0: I think people on my side of things do this because we want to mean something to people. And so when we see that we are meaning something to somebody that's uh, why else will we put up with all of the slings and arrows of this kind of business? It's, it's very hard to be my part of this business, the, the artist part of the reason that you're good as an artist is because of a certain sensitivity that makes you pretty vulnerable when you're around kind of hardened business people who, in order to endure the, you know, the the difficult economics of, of Broadway, for example, of a live theater space or the, you know, that they need to be tough. But ironically, the artists need to be soft mm-hmm. in order to make that connection to the audience. So it's, you're, you're supposed to have a thick skin. I've never been good at that, um, which is why I'm good as a performer. I don't want to get too thick a skin, but it can be painful sometimes when you're confronted with things that you're ill-equipped um, constitutionally to deal with.
2: Well, using the concept of, of having a thick skin and having a thin skin, so to speak, but you know, your your skin is also um, thin when it comes to caring for other people and being philanthropic. And you and I actually met back in 2005 in conjunction with the Tony Awards. And you and I worked on a number of programs, charity programs for Broadway Cares at the time. But I know that you supported so many charities over the past years, um, including Broadway Cares, but also AMFAR and the AIDS Project of LA and Cystic Fibrosis and Paul Newman's Hole in the Wall Gang, the USO, American Cancer Society, the Actors Fund. And, you know, that's also another way of, of being meaningful to not just your fans, but, you know, meeting in life, right? And I just wondered why you are so philanthropic. Why do you care?
0: When I was the kid, I was the one who was sort of the wallflower who would rather read a book in the corner and was kind of awkward about other, you know, engaging with all like the popular kids, you know especially when they started to like drink beer and stuff. And that was illegal. And I was like, huh! you know, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I haven't, I had a military father, so it was kind of a strict upbringing. And, you know, we were expected to almost like if you're, if your parents are politicians, like you got to stay in line. It's about the dignity of your family, you know? So, but I was also inherently shy and a creative person. And I said earlier, when you asked me those adjectives, are, uh, uncertain and, mm-hmm. and uncertain only because awkward, because I'm a natural introvert and it's taken to me until in my forties to say, it's okay, even in an extroverted business and an extroverted society to be who you are and to, uh, and to just declare to yourself, I'm a shy person or an introverted person. So that feeling of alienation that happens, anyone who was ever a teenager knows what I'm talking about the feeling of alienation and and sort of not fitting in and being a misfit or whatever outcast even some at some points how can you not come out of that with a, more of a sort of a softness or an empathy for other people who are struggling so what's really weird is i have so much engagement with charity but i wouldn't choose to to like wake up one day and say oh i want to go and work for charity today like i do it because i know it helps, but my, but I actually have a very awkward engagement with the idea because it also requires getting up and getting around people, you know, <laughs> and some I'm kind of a brooder. And so like, and one of the things that happens when I'm asked to do charity stuff is I'm like, how much impact, how much impact can I even have here? You know, do I bring enough eyes to this? What I've learned in the meantime, is that I'm really good at the, and I, you know, I think it's not surprising for a kind of introverted person. I'm really good at this sort of one-on-one thing. I'm good at a board meeting. I'm good at a table of a small group of people. I'm good at ideas and I'm good at one-on-one interaction. So one of the things you didn't mention, but was a deeply important part of my philanthropic activities was being a, you know, a, Presidential appointee for Barack Obama and working with his arts and uh, humanities committee. The co chair of that was actually a Broadway colleague that I knew since I was in college. Um, I invited her to come and speak to our seminar when I was an undergrad at Brown. Margot Lyon, who just recently passed away, the famous producer of Hairspray. She was a friend
2: of mine, too. Yep. Oh,
0: great. Yeah. Very, very intelligent and whip smart. She was the co chair of this committee. One of the initiatives that I was engaged with was called Turnaround Arts, which was conceived under Michelle Obama and this committee um, and then migrated over to the uh, the Kennedy Center. So it still exists, even with everything that happened with Trump. It survived And because uh, we moved it over to Kennedy Center right before the election. This was uh, sending artists into underperforming schools to use the arts and the humanities as a lever to lift the whole culture of the school. So for example, like if you started to give them dance recitals, then parents would come and be engaged with the culture of the school, which would be better for the students. If you got the whole school involved in a mural project to paint a mural in the, one of the hallways, those cinder blocks turned into this magical thing that the students felt ownership over and it, it helped everything in the school, okay? I found that my, that my individual engagement with some of these students was more my style. So I remember I was backstage one time we were practicing a little dance thing that was gonna go in a video from all of these schools across the country we were working with who were gonna put a video together and send it to the White House for the Barack, Barack Obama to see. You know? mm-hmm. So I was working with these little kids in I think it was uh, Broward County, Florida. And there was a little girl, a little African-American girl standing in the wings with me before we go on. And it was just the two of us in the wings. The other kids were on stage doing something. And I said to her, you, Barack Obama knows about you. Mm-hmm. And she said, he knows about me? I said, yeah, that's why I'm here. They care about you kids. And she said, about me? Oh. And I was like, yeah, this, I'm here from Washington, D.C. We're here mm-hmm. for you guys. And when you guys do well, the Obamas find out they know that you're doing better or that you're doing well, you know, so that to me crystallizes my favorite way of giving back, which is that one-on-one or, but with like someone really established, like I was at, I was at a dinner at Frank Gary's house. Okay. In Santa Monica (laughs) with like Josh Groban was there and, and, um, and Paula Abdul and Matt Groening, who invented the Simpsons. Okay. That's the kind of group, uh, Maria Shriver. This is the kind of people that were there. And little old me.
2: Just the normal people you hang out with.
0: <laughs> <laughs> little old me, who's a member of the president's committee. So we would have to enlist people to go and visit these schools. And Matt Groening was there at this dinner, but he wasn't in, he wasn't involved yet. And I got up. And uh, as the least famous of all these people that I just mentioned, and just imparted to this group of people at this dinner what this program was and how we could affect these kids and that it has a deep impact for these kids who are otherwise ignored to know that someone from the highest office in the land is aware of them and cares about them that's huge Mm -hmm. when i was a kid and i got the presidential fitness award you know from because i was able to pass those fitness (laughs) tests yes Like, and I got, and it was signed by the yes, president. Yes, I do remember. Yeah, I was, mm-hmm. I, I didn't care who the president was when I got mine. I was like, wow, this is from the president of the United States. It was a great feeling as a kid. So I tell this story, something similar to that, whatever. And Matt groaning, you know, the, the slaps the table. He's like, I'm in. You know, the invent, the creator of the Simpsons is going to go to schools. Every kid knows the Simpsons and he's going to go and work with kids mm-hmm. in their school. You know, so... Those sort of impacts with small groups, I realized that that's where I, I do the best work. But in the beginning, I just, I showed up because I was asked to. And also, if you want to mean something to people, you know, a year before Jersey Boys happened for me, I was an usher for the same producers, for the Dodgers, from the people that don't know Broadway, Dodger Productions is a big producer. I was an usher working at 42nd Street, the, the musical, you know, a year before I was starring in a show for them, my own show, you know, it was a survival job. And so, and, and, but yet I was around the theater. I got to see the show every day and, and learn from watching okay. people go, get up to bat every day, do the same show. No one cares about you when you're an unknown actor. No one cares about you when you're an out of work actor. But then you're starring in a Broadway show and you can help with these initiatives and you can bring people to the table. Like, Broadway Cares, which is you basically get involved with Broadway Cares automatically when you're a Broadway show because they're fundraising drives a couple times a year. And this again was pre-social media, but I had a little blog on my personal website, and I had Jersey Boys fans reading what I wrote on my blog. And I was like, "This is amazing! I can let's see what I can do if I if I ask these followers to contribute to Broadway Cares." And so I, with small little checks from people like as little as like $10 or $20, I brought a fat envelope of checks that were sent to me at the stage door to Tom Viola, head of Broadway Cares, for like $30,000, you know? It was amazing to me how much I could take the goodwill from being in a great show and translate that into action toward benefiting uh, charity. And so it's fun for me to gather interest around something. How can I complain when you're sitting on a, around a boardroom table with 30 people appointed by a president of the United States? You're making an impact. You're in the room where it happens, so to speak.
2: You literally were. With the Lucky
0: Land Sluts, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
2: I started this podcast and the idea was to talk about this interaction or this this intersection really between you know celebrity and cause and giving back mm-hmm. and to help motivate and inspire people and fans to be more philanthropic. And I really think that there are many different ways that people can give back. You know, the work that you've done, especially sitting on boards and using your again, your empathy and your intelligence together. Um, to help create some of the programs is you know is is so important.
0: But we don't do this to be doing it in a vacuum. We don't do this to be the tree that falls in the forest that no one hears.
2: There are so many different ways to give back or to um, to be philanthropic or to be a social activist. But if you were to advise your fans, because you do have a lot of fans and people care about you and they care what you think and what you say. How would you advise your fans to become more philanthropic or more socially engaged um, in causes?
0: I would say the first thing is, if you can write a small check to a big cause, there's power in numbers and there's other people doing it. So sometimes it is give money. Another thing that I think is deeply important, my greatest passion is kind of teasing out and addressing The child in adults, which is also what you do as a performer, because everyone turns into a five-year-old when the lights go down, the show's about to start, everyone's excited like a little kid. You can do one-on-one stuff with other adults, and that is philanthropy, because what is that love of other human beings? Right. So if there's a kid, you take that child aside and you give that child some support and some encouragement. And they'll always remember it. And it's similarly, you can do that for an adult that had those things left undone. You give them some encouragement. I guess that that's a, a small way that you can help is by giving people encouragement.
2: And we've talked also just the reason, one of the reasons I asked you one of those quick fire questions was, you know, what was the last random act of kindness you did? Because that's something everybody can do. People can just be kinder. And you opened this podcast with talking about how Broadway could be a kinder place when it returns after the pause. And I think that's a really important thing. I've been asking every one of my guests in the last few months, if you had a magic wand that you could wave, what changes do you hope will happen in the theater industry when it reopens? So it sounds to me from your earlier answer that one of the things you would answer would be that Broadway would be a kinder, safer place to be. Um, And I just wondered if you could sort of you know, give us a little deeper dive into that thinking. And also, are there any other things, if you had this magic wand, what would you what would you do to make Broadway a better place?
0: I think, first of all, one of the real sort of chilling insights about this pandemic and actors and people on my side of things not being able to work for, it'll probably be two years before we even get to do something again, There is a pervasive idea in Broadway that only the producers and the writers and creators are the the only ones that count. But all the kids who, and and not so much kids, who put that sweat equity in to build a show up in that first year, win it its Tonys, whatever, make it what it is. The ones who are on the cast album, the ones who are, you know, their first, shouldn't on the other side become destitute or not have some sort of share in that success. You and I are seeing there's a lot of controversy right now and there's lots of um, agitation happening in especially in theater right now. While there's no theater. I mean, I kind of have said before I, I think it's kind of strange that while the powers that be are comatose in the ICU ICU, you know, there's people making demands of them. You know, it's <laughs> like there is nothing to give right now. There's no audience, you know. So, but now I'm lucky. I'm just like, you know, I'm I'm alright. I'm not as well off as some of the creators of Jersey Boys, for example, or like whatever. But uh I'm not destitute. But I could be. And it shouldn't be that situation. it should not be that way that uh that you're left out to drive that you're hanging out to drive. People in my position. Now, maybe that's one solution, but there should be others. The pandemic has kind of forced a whole class of people to have to leave New York because mm-hmm. there's no way to survive. Many of those people are going are the the types that make like you said earlier, you asked me, what did you what did you give up to do this? Stability, okay? To be ready and able and willing to be in a Broadway show and be the one sending over if you're lucky enough to have a hit, the one sending that over. I don't believe the thing that they tell you to negotiate you down or to you know, make you not get too secure when they say, well, anyone can do this. I don't believe that. Let's see how many of these people can afford to move back to New York City. Because those are the people that are going to populate those Broadway shows when they come back. And if you don't make it a little bit easier for people to survive something like this, mm-hmm. I don't know how it's going to happen, but I hope that there is a recognition that we're an ecosystem that we all rely on each other. Mm-hmm. And that this... Uh, Marginalization of people because they're the actor or because they're the talent is really inappropriate. We all have our place in the ecosystem. Right. But I really find it very uncomfortable to be someone who can reach the level of presidential appointee for the first African American president in history and still be uh, classed down all the way to the bottom as a member of this ecosystem. And I, would like to see it change. So I would say that for people on my side, the the art, the creative side, I'd like to see us uh, have a little bit more of a seat at the table and not be so disregarded.
2: No, that's great. And, you know, I appreciate the honesty. A lot of people have said things that are very difficult to say when I've asked that question. And um, I think it's important to have these conversations, you know, whether it's about, you know, the fairness in the ecosystem, or whether it's about, um, you know, the systemic racism, or, you know, there's a million other problems with, with uh, you know, the way Broadway shows are being produced or within that industry. But there's also so much good, you know, and there's, you know, I, I yeah. do think that, Looking at Broadway, the the spirit of collaboration in the Broadway industry is unlike mm-hmm. anything else, and I do mm-hmm. think that the spirit of philanthropy within the Broadway industry is like anything else. There's nothing else oh, like it. I mean, Hollywood doesn't where, have anything absolutely. like that. So that was also mm-hmm. another impetus for having this conversation mm-hmm. and and having this podcast.
0: That's where the that's where the 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 community feeling of Broadway and the and. The um, the peer pressure, you know, to all get behind it is is one of the most positive peer exactly. pressures, right?
2: Well, listen, thank you so much for this chat today. I really appreciate it, and I'm sure people are going to want to see you in concert on May first. And um, I guess it's too late to make the request, but we. Um, We'll be watching, and hopefully, people will request the song that we want to oh, hear. Oh, some doozies. I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I appreciate it, and thank you for being here today, and um, for every all the good that you do.
0: Thanks for doing this. I think it's good to put this out in the world and to encourage encourage more of it. Sending love. You too.
2: Thanks for listening to this episode of Broadway Gives Back. Broadway Gives Back is part of the Broadway Podcast Network, produced by Dory Bernstein and Alan Seals with Brittany Bigelow and music by Eric Becker at Broderick Street Music. Special thanks to my producing partner, writer, and friend, Jim Lochner, and to Katie and Yo at BPN, Julian Hills from the Bulldog Agency, the Charity Network, and to my fiance, Glenn Weiss, who is always my consultant. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and rate this podcast wherever you stream your podcasts. You can also follow Broadway Gives Back on Facebook and Instagram, at Broadway Gives Back Podcast, and on Twitter at Broadway Gives. To learn more, visit bpn.fm slash Broadway Gives Back.
0: Hi, y'all, this is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm
2: Gloria Stephlin. This is Sarah Borellis.
1: Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check.